Chapter 36 of Varney the Vampire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Varney the Vampire, Volume 1, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter 36 the consultation, the duel and its results. Independent of this interview which Flora had had with the much-dreaded Sir Francis Varney, the circumstances in which she and all who were dear to her happened at that moment to be placed, certainly required an amount of consideration which could not be too soon bestowed. By a combination of disagreeables, everything that could possibly occur to disturb the peace of the family seemed to have taken place at once. Like Macbeth's, their troubles had truly come in battalions, and now that the serenity of their domestic position was destroyed, minor evils and annoyances which that very serenity had enabled them to hold at arm's length became gigantic and added much to their distress. The small income, which, when all was happiness, health, and peace, was made to constitute a comfortable household, was now totally inadequate to do so. The power to economize and to make the most of a little had flown along with that contentedness of spirit which the harmony of circumstances alone could produce. It was not to be supposed that poor Mrs. Bannerworth could now, as she had formerly done, when her mind was free from anxiety, attend to those domestic affairs which make up the comforts of a family, distracted at the situation of her daughter, and bewildered by the rapid succession of troublesome events which so short a period of time had given birth to, she fell into an inert state of mind as different as anything could be from her former active existence. It has likewise been seen how the very domestics fled from Bannerworth Hall in dismay, rather than remain beneath the same roof with a family believed to be subject to the visitations of so awful a being as a vampire. Among the class who occupy positions of servitude, certainly there might have been found some who, with feelings and understanding above such considerations, would have clung sympathetically to that family in distress, which they had known under a happier aspect, but it had not been the good fortune of the Bannerworths to have such as these about them. Hence selfishness had its way, and they were deserted. It was not likely, then, that strangers would willingly accept service in a family so situated without some powerful impulse in the shape of a higher pecuniary consideration as was completely out of the power of the Bannerworths to offer. Thus was it, then, that most cruelly, at the very time that they had most need of assistance and of sympathy, this unfortunate family almost became isolated from their kind, and, apart from every other consideration, it would have been almost impossible for them to continue inhabitants of the hall, with anything like comfort or advantage. And then, although the disappearance of Charles Holland no longer awakened those feelings of inclination at his supported perfidy which were first produced by that event, still, view it in which way they might, it was a severe blow of fate, and after it they one and all found themselves still less able to contend against the sea of troubles that surrounded them. 
The reader, too, will not have failed to remark that there was about the whole of the family that pride of independence which induced them to shrink from living upon extraneous aid, and hence, although they felt, and felt truly, that when Admiral Bell, in his frank manner, offered them pecuniary assistance, that it was no idle compliment. Yet, with a sensitiveness such as they might well be expected to feel, they held back, and asked each other what prospect there was of emerging from such a state of things, and if it were justifiable to commence a life of dependence, the end of which was not evident or tangible. Notwithstanding, too, the noble confidence of Flora in her lover, and notwithstanding that confidence had been echoed by her brothers, there would at times obtrude into the minds of the latter a feeling of the possibility that after all they might be mistaken, and Charles Holland might, from some sudden impulse, fancying his future happiness was all at stake, have withdrawn himself from the hall, and really written the letters attributed to him. We say this only obtruded itself occasionally, for all their real feelings and aspirations were the other way, although Mr. Marchdale, they could perceive, had his doubts, and they could not but confess that he was more likely to view the matter calmly and dispassionately than they. In fact, the very hesitation with which he spoke upon the subject convinced them of his doubts, for they attributed that hesitation to fear of giving them pain or of wounding the prejudices of Admiral Bell, with whom he had already had words so nearly approaching to a quarrel. Henry's visit to Mr. Chillingworth was not likely to be productive of any results beyond those of a conjectural character. All that that gentleman could do was to express a willingness to be directed by them in any way, rather than suggest any course of conduct himself upon circumstances which he could not be expected to judge of as they who were on the spot and had witnessed their actual occurrence. And now we will suppose that the reader is enabled with us to look into one of the principal rooms of Bannerworth Hall. It is evening, and some candles are shedding a sickly light on the ample proportions of the once handsome apartment. At solemn consultation, the whole of the family are assembled. As well as the Admiral, Mr. Chillingworth, and Marchdale, Jack Pringle, too, walked in by the sufferance of his master, as if he considered he had a perfect right to do so. The occasion of the meeting had been a communication which Flora had made concerning her most singular and deeply interesting interview with the vampire. The details of this interview had produced a deep effect upon the whole of the family. Flora was there, and she looked better, calmer, and more collected than she had done for some days past. No doubt, the interview she had had with Varney in the summer-house in the garden had dispelled a host of imaginary terrors with which she had surrounded him, although it had confirmed her fully that he, and he only, was the dreadful being who had caused her so much misery. That interview had tended to show her that about him there was yet something human, and that there was not a danger of her being hunted down from place to place by so horrible an existence. Such a feeling as this was, of course, a source of deep consolation, and with a firmer voice, and more of her old spirit of cheerfulness about her than she had lately exhibited, she again detailed the particulars of the interview to all who had assembled, concluding by saying, And this has given me hope of happier days, 
If it be a delusion, it is a happy one. And now, that but a frightful veil of mystery still hangs over the fate of Charles Holland, how gladly would I bid adieu to this place, and all that has made it terrible. I could almost pity Sir Francis Farney, rather than condemn him. That may be true, said Henry, to a certain extent, sister, but we never can forget the amount of misery he has brought upon us. It is no slight thing to be forced from our old and much-loved home, even if such proceeding does succeed in freeing us from his persecutions. But, my young friend, said Marchdale, you must recollect that through life it is continually the lot of humanity to be endeavoring to fly from great evils to those which do not present themselves to the mind in so bad an aspect. It is something, surely, to alleviate affliction if we cannot entirely remove it. That is true, said Mr. Chillingworth, to a considerable extent, but then it takes too much for granted to please me. How so, sir? Why, certainly, to remove from Bannerworth Hall is a much less evil than to remain at Bannerworth Hall and be haunted by a vampire. But then, that proposition takes for granted that vampire business, which I will never grant, I repeat again and again, it is contrary to all experience, to philosophy, and to all the laws of ordinary nature. Facts are stubborn things, said Marchdale. Apparently, remarked Mr. Chillingworth. Well, sir, and here we have the fact of the vampire. The presumed fact. One swallow don't make a summer, Mr. Marchdale. This is a waste of time, said Henry. Of course, the amount of evidence that will suffice to bring conviction to one man's mind will fail in doing so to another. The question is, what are we to do? All eyes were turned upon Flora, as if this question was more particularly addressed to her, and it behooved her, above all others, to answer it. She did so, and in a firm, clear voice she said, I will discover the fate of Charles Holland, and then leave the hall. The fate of Charles Holland, said Marchdale. Why, really, unless that gentleman chooses to be communicative himself upon so interesting a subject, we may be a long while discovering his fate. I know that it is not a romantic view to take of the question, to suppose simply that he wrote the three letters found upon his dressing-table, and then decamped. But to my mind, it savors most wonderfully of matter-of-fact. I now speak more freely than I have otherwise done, for I am now upon the eve of my departure. I have no wish to remain here and breed dissension in any family, or to run a tilt against anybody's prejudices. Here he looked at Admiral Bell. I leave this house tonight. You're a damned lubberly thief, said the Admiral. The sooner you leave it, the better. Why, you bad-looking son of a gun, what do you mean? I thought we'd had enough of that. I fully expected this abuse, said Marchdale. Did you expect that? said the admiral as he snatched up an inkstand and threw at Marchdale, hitting him a hard knock on the chin and bespattering its contents on his breast. 
Now I'll give you satisfaction, you lubber. Damn me if you ain't a second Jones, and enough to sink this ship. Shiver my timbers if I shan't say something strong presently. I really, said Henry, must protest, Admiral Bell, against this conduct. Protest be damned. Mr. Marchdale may be right, sir, or he may be wrong. It's a matter of opinion. Oh, never mind, said Marchdale. I look upon this old nautical ruffian as something between a fool and a madman. If he were a younger man, I should chastise him upon the spot. But as it is, I live in hopes yet of getting him into some comfortable lunatic asylum. Me into an asylum? shouted the admiral. Jack, did you hear that? Aye, aye, sir. Farewell, all of you, said Marchdale. My best wishes be with this family. I cannot remain under this roof to be so insulted. A good riddance, cried the admiral. I'd rather sail around the world with a shipload of vampires than with such a humbugging son of a gun as you are. Damn ye, you're worse than a lawyer. Nay, nay, cried they. Mr. Marchdale, stay! Stay, stay, cried George, and Mrs. Bannerworth likewise said, stay. But at the moment, Flora stepped forward, and in a clear voice she said, No, let him go. He doubts Charles Holland. Let all go who doubt Charles Holland. Mr. Marchdale, heaven forgive you this injustice you are doing. We may never meet again. Farewell, sir. These words were spoken in so decided a tone that no one contradicted them. Marchdale cast a strange kind of look round upon the family circle, and in another instant he was gone. Huzzah! shouted Jack Pringle. That's one good job. Henry looked rather resentful, which the admiral could not but observe and so, less with the devil-may-care manner in which he usually spoke, the old man addressed him. Hark ye, Mr. Henry Bannerworth, you ain't best pleased with me, and in that case I don't know that I shall stay to trouble you any longer. As for your friend who has just left you, sooner or later you'll find him out. I tell you there's no good in that fellow. Do you think I've been cruising about for a matter of sixty years and don't know an honest man when I see him? But never mind, I'm going on a voyage of discovery for my nephew, and you can do as you like. Heaven only knows, Admiral Bell, said Henry, who is right and who is wrong. I do much regret that you have quarreled with Mr. Marchdale, but what is done can't be undone. Do not leave us, said Flora. Let me beg of you, Admiral Bell, not to leave us. For my sake, remain here, for to you I can speak freely and with confidence of Charles, when probably I can do so to no one else. You know him well and have a confidence in him, which no one else can aspire to. I pray you, therefore, to stay with us. Only on one condition, said the Admiral. Name it, name it. You think of letting the hall go? Yes, yes. Let me have it then, and let me pay a few years in advance. 
If you don't, I'm damned if I stay another night in the place. You must give me immediate possession to, and stay here as my guests until you suit yourselves elsewhere. Those are my terms and conditions. Say yes, and all's right. Say no, and I'm off like a round shot from a carronade. Damn me, that's the thing, Jack, isn't it? Aye, aye, sir. There was a silence of some few moments after this extraordinary offer had been made, and then they spoke, saying, Admiral Bell, your generous offer and the feelings which dictated it are by far too transparent for us to affect not to understand them. Your actions, Admiral, oh, bother my actions. What are they to you? Come now, I consider myself master of the house, damn you. I invite you all to dinner, or supper, or to whatever meal comes next. Mrs. Bannerworth, will you oblige me, as I'm an old fool in family affairs, by buying what's wanted for me and my guests? There's the money, ma'am. Come along, Jack. We'll take a look over our new house. What do you think of it? Want some sheathing, sir, here and there. Very like, but, however, it'll do well enough for us. We're in port, you know. Come along. Aye, aye, sir. And off went the Admiral and Jack, after leaving a twenty-pound note in Mrs. Bannerworth's lap. End of chapter 36 Recording by Roger Moline